So I want to play you a meme from 2004. You know something? Not only are we going to New Hampshire, Tom Harkin, we're going to South Carolina and Oklahoma and Arizona and North Dakota and New Mexico. And we're going to California and Texas and New York. And we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. And with one scream coming from a man who was clearly celebrating one of the happiest, most joyous moments of his life, we watched someone inadvertently crash and burn an entire campaign to be president of the United States. Howard Dean's scream in 2004 is largely credited with being the undoing of his presidential campaign. What goes largely forgotten, by the way, is that Dean wasn't actually celebrating a win. He actually came in third place that night. He was simply leading a joyous pep rally to get his supporters all riled up. It all seems so innocent now, doesn't it? This is why we can't have nice things. Anyway, these days it seems that these things can literally go south in a matter of minutes. Literally just this week, Blake Lively Instagrammed a photo of her body and quoted a famous lyric from a Sir Mix-a-Lot song from the 90s, only to receive horrific insults and accusations of racism. This is why we can't have nice things. Also this week, Kenny Hayward, a politician from Louisiana, made some untoward remarks about women, and the Twitterverse, of course, erupted. Only, they erupted at the wrong Kenny Hayward. A dentist from Texas who happens to own the Twitter handle, at Kenny Hayward, was the trending topic for a while. This is why we can't have nice things. Heck, the BBC did the horrible thing of actually removing recipes from its website this week. That's right, in a cost-cutting move, they started removing recipes that were over a month old. The social media justice was cruel and merciless. This is why we can't have nice things. And that's just this week. And here's the thing. Also just this week, a wonderful woman named Candace Payne created a Facebook video called I'm a Happy Chewbacca, where she gleefully donned the Chewbacca mask and proceeded to make me, and at the time I'm recording this, a hundred million other people laugh. A hundred million views. It's the biggest Facebook Live video to date. The saddest thing is, my first reaction after smiling and laughing was to wonder how long it's going to be before the internet finds something, anything, to tear her down. And for us as marketers, this, this is one more interesting filter that we have in creating our great content. Each week it seems like we see another hashtag fail of some brand experimenting with something weird and innovative and creative and, yeah, sometimes stupid. But yet instead of applauding them for trying... With the same creativity, the same innovation, and the willingness to fail that we always talk about that they should have, we see the pundits jump on the hashtag fail and celebrate with glee that the failure isn't them. It's just one more thing that makes our road to great content hard. And that's our theme this week, nice things ruined. Those that are experimenting with cool things and maybe failing, and those where failure isn't an option, and in so doing, choose not to stand out. And now... Well, it's time for Joe and I to get our own little marketing meme-filled show on the road. You ready to take a risk, be creative, and stand out? Then let's roll. And now for your listening pleasure, here's Polizzi and Rose, PR with This Old Marketing. Take it away, boys. Well, hello, content marketers. I'm Robert Rose, and welcome to episode number 132 of PNR's This Old Marketing, recorded Monday, May 22nd. 
2016. And with me, as always, is my friend, my co-host, my colleague, and the main reason that I can have nice things, Mr. Joe Polizzi. How are you, my friend? I'm doing wonderful. I thought you were going to say, yeah. the man who can never have nice things, Joe Polizzi. <laughs> well, I know differently. I know differently about that. So, <laughs> No, I am smiling right now. It's good to be home. It was an interesting travel week, getting delayed. Before. How was Norway? How was how was Denmark? Uh, I went actually. I went to Amsterdam first, and then went to Oslo. Um, oh, Oslo! So, I'm yep. sorry. I no, that's it was, all right. Uh, that's all right. Uh, you and yeah. I have been over there quite a bit, but it was great. Yeah. Uh, content marketing fast forward in Amsterdam was you know, wonderful. Bert and AJ, good you know, good friends, and then uh, Ola in in Norway put on a great content marketing Norge event. So that was <laughs> right. that was wonderful, and I got to see our friends Michael Brenner and Ann Hanley and many many uh, right. Jeff Bullis was out there. Lots of really good people. So that was fun. It was just tough, and you've you've been this through this before. Uh, my flight from Cleveland to Toronto was delayed just enough that by the time I landed, my flight to Amsterdam already took off. For whatever oh, reason, no. I couldn't get a connection th- through Heathrow. I could get to Heathrow, but I couldn't get anywhere through. So I ended right. up arriving, you know, just a few hours before I went and took the stage uh, with minimal sleep. But you know, we do what we have to do. The show must go yeah. on, right? <laughs> exactly. the sh- The show must go on. And how was your week? <laughs> what did you do this week? My My week was uh, was quite lovely, actually. I I got a lot of writing done. I ended up. Um, uh, doing a quick client visit to uh, to a, to a client, and other than that, it was um, it was a it was a pretty quiet a quiet week. Well, we are going to have a busy week before we get onto the show. Uh, you know, of course, I have to remind everyone we only have I That's think right. it's seven days from now. Anyways, May thirty first is the early bird close date, so this is when a huge chunk of our registrations come in because you get the best possible price for Content Marketing World. Of course, uh, we talked about Mark Hamill on the show last time, Cheap Trick, and uh, all kinds of and over 200 speakers this year. It's hard to believe it's, it's gotten it's that amazing. big. It's um, amazing. But anyways, our, if you're a listener, PNR, you get a discount. So PNR, the letters P, the letter R, the, the, I'm sorry, the letter P, the letter N, the letter R, 200. PNR 200 for $200 off. We want you to get the best price as a PNR listener, and we definitely want to see you there. And we, of course, love our fans, and we still can't believe we have fans, actually. So it's so nice to have them. And uh, we definitely want to meet you in person at Content Marketing World. Uh, I'll be on the main stage. Robert will be on the main stage. So we're going to have some fun. So make sure we see you there. I am excited. You've only got a few days left. Sign up today. We hope to see you there. So. And Luke Skywalker's coming. Just, I mean, not to put any pressure on anybody, but Luke Skywalker's coming to Content have Marketing I even, World. Have, so have I showed you the setup, the, the set? The, I saw on, um, yes. Uh, I it? can't remember if it was on Facebook or somewhere, but I saw the setup for the stage, and it was it's just going to be incredible. Oh, my I gosh. Mean, I can't even, like, I wish I could describe it to everyone, the LED screens in the back and what we're going to do with it. And it basically looks like a space station type of thing yeah it's gonna be it's we spared no expense (laughs) he said was jurassic park right spare no expense spare no expense no dinosaurs but everything else we got so it'll be it'll be fun all right my friend all right well then shall we to the news Do this thing rock and roll we shall all right well we're gonna open up with not necessarily a story that we're gonna link to but it was an email exchange we had 
um, with uh, one of our listeners, and just it turned into something really interesting. So, um, of course, Joe, you remember, and maybe some of those out there listening will remember, we had a lovely discussion last week about Facebook and the trending articles that were happening on Facebook and, and some of the bias or not bias, that thing. To, and one of the things that Joe and I ended up concluding, sort of in the classic mistake of, you know, not, uh, you know, trying to assume that we are our own target market here, is that nobody uses the trending articles. And Jaden Bales, who is a business student at the University of Oregon, and sent us a wonderful email basically saying, um, yeah, that whole trending thing, not so much. We have a sort of an impromptu sort of focus group here where he did sort of a quick poll. And as it turns out, a number of his peers at the uh, university do indeed use the trending feature. And so we ended up having a lovely conversation back and forth about the value of trending topics on Facebook and sort of the ways that younger people are actually starting to use that idea versus what which is, uh, appears in, in their feed. Um, well, you were part of this, Joe. What did you think? I What you said is... You, you've got to remember who your audience is, and we obviously have an audience, and a lot of those people in in, in our audience use tre- the trending feature because I think you and I dismissed it, right? Because we said, and I yes, basically right. said, I get a lot of my news from Facebook, but I get that from sharing from other people in right. my feed, and that's the way that I do it. But apparently, you know, Jaden took his survey, and I think he said of the fifteen people in his class, nine regularly use the trending feature. That's so right. egg on our face. And then I asked back <laughs> in the email back, I asked Jaden, I said, okay, so now of those nine or those people, how many of those would really miss it when they were gone, if it were gone, right? If it didn't exist, how many of those would, would, would truly miss it? And he came back and, and, and basically asked a number of them. They weren't all in the same room. He wasn't like waiting for our yeah, email exactly. on bated breath or anything, but he was, he, he had ended up asking a few of them and said, yeah, a few of them wouldn't miss it, et cetera, et cetera. So, there was it's a really interesting i think thing to understand which and this goes right to which i won't get into now but gets into my rant um later in the show about not making assumptions about this to really understand your your audience and, and all of that and and jaden helped point us out that you know we were making some assumptions that we shouldn't have so good for jaden for for calling us out on that good for jaden and the other truth is, is that Facebook makes a lot of does a lot of things that you and I have disagreed with, and they seem to be doing just fine. Yeah, exactly. So it's hard, it's yeah, hard to come down funny. on Mr. Zuckerberg. I, I too don't much. understand why nobody's listening to tell, telling them what to do, Joe. But they're not listening. He's done. For, I mean, that's what I, I gave a speech the other day, uh, talking about right. how okay, yeah, we've got our fans on Facebook, and we've got our pages, and we spent all this money on it, and then you know that Facebook did this horrible thing and took away our access, and we thought that was horrible, but not. So horrible for Facebook because yeah, they've no. been one of the most profitable cus- uh, companies in history. Uh, yeah. So I think uh, I think they're they're doing just fine. We they're just doing just fine. Yeah. They're doing just fine. Anyway, so we wanted to bring that up and just yeah. Thanks, Jay. Thank you, Jay, for listening, we and we really appreciate it. Um, and so now moving on to the top story of the week, and this comes to us courtesy of well, everywhere on the planet, <laughs> unless you were underneath a rock that didn't have Wi-Fi, um, which comes to us. We'll, the link we'll point to in the show notes is from Adweek, which speaks to a wonderful woman um, by the uh, by, by the name. Uh, well, I'll just open up in the article and says these days the only thing rarer than seeing something truly delightful go viral is seeing a brand respond to it in a way that's equally charming. Um, And so Candace Payne, who put on a Chewbacca mask, 
uh, and had a wonderful video of just sort of unfiltered joy ended up going completely viral. A hundred and something million, Joe has the numbers here in just a second, views in literally like four or five days. Just went extremely viral. And the Adweek article, uh, or excuse me, the uh, post up how they, Coles took advantage of this and ended up sending her a bunch of packages. Now, we're going to pair this with another story here that comes from our friend Scott Monty and his wonderful newsletter, that he writes. And basically, he had a headline that said, Facebook needs to make it easier to report stolen videos. As he opens up and says, basically echoing everybody's, it's quite a thing when nearly 10% of Facebook's population has seen a single video. This kind of shared experience is something that I truly believe can help us bring us closer together. And he's referring to, of course, the charming and delightful video that Candace Payne shared this week and became the most viewed Facebook Live video ever. And so he goes on to explain about how it's really difficult right now because of all of the different people that ended up stealing that video, putting it up on YouTube, putting it up on other video sharing services, and how it's really very difficult right now to sort of note those things and, and make Facebook aware that this is actually going on in their own backyard. So those two things together really, you know, and it speaks to the opening that, that, that I that I had uh, this episode. But what did you think, Joe, about all of this, you know, this sort of hubbub about this particular piece of content? By the way, the, the video is really cute. Like I was, I didn't have a reaction of, of, like many people did and said, oh, I was laughing till I cried. And I thought it was really cute. It made me smile, which is, which is a wonderful thing. And I, I think Candace right. is a lovely person. And I just thought that what she did was, was very authentic and, and real, which is exactly why brands can't and won't do this because they're not willing to take risks. They're not willing to, to lean into a personality that they have, especially into characters in their organization. Now right. could, a small business or could an entrepreneur do this? Yes. And that's where the opportunity is. So small businesses, you can, things like this can happen if you're willing to put yourself out there on a regular basis, a la, let's say a Gary Vaynerchuk, right? Doing a really good job of doing this really in your face. He makes a lot of people upset and he inspires a lot of other people at the same time. He can make this happen. Uh, but this, to, to be honest with you, to have, as we speak, 138 million views of this thing it's i mean that's that's more than 10 percent of facebook's entire audience i mean that's you walk down the street and most people are going to see this it's right. hard to believe that the, the power of social sharing is is really amazing as you see this now what i i love it's so interesting right i'm sure i would love to be in the cole's social media marketing department and have them say well <laughs> what do we do because there's there you could do some things that could have made them look horrible. I'm That's I'm assuming, right. right? They they took actually took a chance that said let's take advantage of this and let's go in and just give her a lot of stuff and give the Chewbacca masks to the kids and they recorded it. And by the way, to the Scott Monty post as well, that one I heard has been stolen a few times. So the stealing issue is is one, you know, well let's talk about that in a second cuz I think it's important, but do you have anything else on Coles and their response to I this? I think it's or? exactly, just just to exactly to the point you just made, which is, so Coles sits around and says, let's take a risk here, you know? And, I, you know, I obviously wasn't in the room when they decided, you know what, we're going to actually create a, an event here, an experience for both Candace, as well as our customers, as well as the sort of general internet in general. And 
we're going to do this thing and we're going to publicize it and try and quote unquote newsjack the whole thing by sending over some merchandise. As you point out, this thing has just as much a chance of going completely south as it does really heartwarming and, and, and all of that. And we've seen both, right? And to the point that I was making in the opening, which is this, when we, you know, as brands, so often the first thing we do is either shut that down, in other words, you know, because it would have been just as easy for Coles to go, you know what, it's, this, this could go bad. Let's not do it. Let's just sit back yeah. and not do anything. And in this case, they said, let's make, and so the bet paid off. And to your point about the Gary Vaynerchuks, and, and I think there's an escalating scale here of ease, right? All the way down to the individual user, like, a, like Candace, all the way up to a company the size of Coca-Cola about the risk that they can take. And quite frankly, the acceptance of the internet or the public in general to see that as being genuine. You know, if somebody from Coca-Cola or somebody from a big company had done that, it would have immediately been called out as shill or, yeah. you know, selling or something like that, even if it had been genuine and, and whatnot. And it's just really difficult to pull off. Well, I think exactly to your point, it's really, really difficult, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't try. And I guess that's the point I'm trying to make is, is that if we're really going to make an impact with content and deliver value, we absolutely have to be one willing to be wrong for someone, which is what Gary is so good at. He's like, yeah, I don't care if you don't like me. Other people do. Yep. And that's really hard for a big brand to get their heads around. And two, we have to be willing to be called to the carpet sometime, which is also difficult to do in some cases because we just don't, they don't want to risk that bad publicity. And that's a really interesting and, and difficult thing for us to face as brands, but one that I think is expressed so wonderfully in what happened over the last four or five days. Well, fresh off the heels of the, the death of, of Prince, we saw right, that happen exactly. firsthand. And where I think it was, what was it, Cheerios? got I mean, they got slammed for doing the little right. cheerio like we will miss you thing and then well right. and then the other one that ran the the full page ad and and I think it was the USA Today or something it was the automotive company they were they were they said that was brilliant cheered yeah yeah it was brilliant it was brilliant right. so it's just it's it's amazing i mean i'm it's funny i'm reading this book right now i'm actually writing my newsletter post on this for this week it's a it's a book i got from Doug Kessler our good friend Doug Kessler he brought me a belated birthday present in, uh, in Amsterdam. He's super sweet. Uh, but basically, it's a book by Tom Crabby called uh, Busy. And the whole idea, there's a whole section of the book about be different, don't be more. You know, don't be everything to everyone. Now is, you know, we're past the industrial revolution here when more was better. Uh, and, right. and efficiency counted. And right now it's all about everything you do is about differentiation. So I think that it's funny, you know, we talk about this Coles thing and them getting into some office and doing this thing. But really, if they were smart, they already had a plan and they knew that these are the kinds of things that per their plan that they would like to engage in. Because they've talked about exactly. it before. So that thing, so that when mm -hmm. a thing happens and within 10 minutes you can make a decision because you've already, it's already part of the plan and what you want to do. And I think exactly. that's the part of them being differentiated. So I just. Yeah, that's right. No, it's wonderful. Sally Hogshead says this really, it's one of those lines where she says it and it's like, oh, I wish I had said that. She says she has this line where she says different is better than better. And 
it's it's just a great line, but it's it's so true. Um, oh, I can't wait to read this book. It's that sounds like an awesome. book. Well, I shared. I'm sorry, I'm going. We're going off topic, but you saw the yeah. little thing on Facebook that I shared. That's from the book. Yeah, absolutely. and I gotta say, yeah. I gotta share this because I've been sharing it with everybody. I absolutely love it. So this is they this research company did a research project and they look at a, looked at a whole years years of old baseball cards from the same year. And they went and they rated each smile of the baseball player. And they said, well, does the person, is the person smiling or not? Okay, no. Or is it just a regular smile? Or is it a beaming smile, an un- unrelenting smile? And they rated them these three ways. <laughs> and the, the, then they, they went to see how long these people lived. And the, the people with no smile lived 72.9 years old. The people with a smile, just a regular smile, lived to be 75. And the people with, with beaming, who were, were beaming, lived 79 or 80 years old. So nothing else was looked at. Except for in this nice. picture, were they smiling? I and that basically a whole it goes to differentiation. Actually, that's what he was talking about. But it's just it's on point, right? It's amazing uh, what we can do when we we think we want to be different and we want to. Laughter is the best. Medicine. I know that's what that's that was your comment. Sure. Thank you. Yeah. And I laughed. I laughed. <laughs> yeah, it's like ah. <laughs> uh, and then do we need to oh, talk about the stolen laugh. stuff? The I mean, I just think it's an issue, and I think that Scott's point is that Facebook needs to figure this out. And the point that he makes, which is truly brilliant, is he says that if you are a third-party user on Facebook, and he said in this case, he went to another uh, person's site, which I think we can say, Alex Lee. So Alex Lee is a person that ripped off Candace Payne's uh, video, put some subtext around it, and put it, ran it on his site so he could get millions of views and whatnot. And Scott wanted to report that, but the problem is, is that you can't report it unless it's your copyright. So he was all That's disappointed right. because he's like, I know for a fact, 100%, that this is stolen. Candace did not see this. I want to report it on her behalf and help her. And Facebook is making it tough for me to do that. So yeah, that's exactly right. I think that I think you just said it all right there. I mean, that's really it. It's just it needs to be, it needs to be able to be reported so that the the community can 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 police it as well. Yeah, I mean, basically. Uh, he has he has the next steps right here. He says, I hope that the Facebook team, A, looks at the infractions against Candace Coles and any other thousands of individuals and brands that are being affected by this practice. B, takes action against those who are violating Facebook's policy and intellectual price, rights. And then C, improves the reporting process for third parties who can help by reporting the infractions. If they did that, it would fix the problem, I think. That's exactly so, right. There you go. At least make it better. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right, on to our next story here, and this one comes to us courtesy of AdAge.com, and a huge hat tip here to Giannis. I think it's Giannis Rasmussen. Giannis, if I'm mispronouncing your name, uh, please forgive me, at Giannis Rasmussen on Twitter. And it is Pepsi's big bet on content. So the article opens up by saying, if you have Hollywood ambitions, rubbing shoulders with Meryl Streep isn't a bad, bad place to start. And if you want to make it big in the music business, Usher is a pretty good guy to know. So it was fitting that the two megastars, and that's just odd to me, Usher and Meryl Streep sitting together, but that's a whole other topic. All right. (laughs) So those two megastars were among the first celebrities to make use of PepsiCo's sparkling new state-of-the-art content studio in Manhattan. 
That space will be key as the food and beverage giant strengthens its ties to the entertainment world, pumping out branded content while also pursuing distribution deals with film studios, online publishers, and other outlets for brand agnostic content. And the central mission of all of that content? Well, it's to entertain, not to sell chips, soda, oatmeal. Did you know that Pepsi made oatmeal? All right, anyway. Um, And other PepsiCo products, at least not directly. So um, I totally want to get your take on this, but mine, I looked at this article, and I I, I love this for the obvious reason, that here's another brand creating in-house capabilities to create content, to create a content marketing function in the business, to make content an important aspect of what they're doing in the business. And then what I really loved about this, the sort of unique angle on this, is that they're going to make it a service, a studio available to other things, right? To create other types of content. In other words, they're not just using it to make content for themselves, but they're going to sort of make it available for other, I guess, brands or other entities to create content and build an expertise around it. And this to me is a little bit like what Red Bull is doing with Red Bull Media House, certainly. But this is like, here we have a huge brand doing this from the perspective of sort of we're creating our own studio. I mean, it's it's a really interesting take. And to your point, I think, is that this is the way it should be done. What did you think? I loved everything about this article. I, this is one of my favorite yeah. articles I've seen in a while because, it's, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned Red Bull. When I first started to go through what they were doing, I immediately thought of Marriott. I'm like, this is a Marriott. Yeah, exactly. And I started to run through this, but... Now, then as I'm getting to the part where they're actually saying, look, we're going to really behave like a Hollywood studio, but we are also going to drive revenues from this directly so that we can stand alone mm-hmm. to basically pay for all the marketing we want to do. Then I'm saying this is a Red Bull. They are creating a media company that's measured as a media company inside PepsiCo, and they're hoping to throw up some benefit of selling more Pepsi products. But, the, That's right. but basically, they're saying, look, we can already do, we're already doing all this. We're already spending all this money. We might as well create this as an asset. Yes, it will help us sell more stuff, but also we might create some stuff we never anticipated for the business. I'm excited about this. I really hope it works. And I'm a little scared because this is a risk. This is a big risk for a company. But they've been planning this since, it looks like since, so the uh, Mr. Patrick, who's, uh, or I'm sorry, Ms. Patrick, what's, her, what's Kristen Patrick? Senior VP Christian Global Patrick. Brand Development. Yeah. She's partially right. in charge of this. She was brought over from Playboy to be in 2013 right. to run this thing exactly as they're running it right now. They planned for this. So now three years in the making, <clears throat> here we are. So Yeah, it's I think it's I think just to your point, it's 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 a it's a brilliant risk. They've recognized that there's no reason that they can't get into this business as well and that they can't use it to their advantage and do what Red Bull has been able to do, which is create a marketing-related function that, yes, does ultimately help to sell more PepsiCo products, but more importantly, does so at an advantage, whether they run it at a profit or they run it as, you know, at, at some level of a cost, it at least starts to alleviate some of those things. And this is a new model that I know, you know, just from my own travels, I know many brands, big and small, by the way, um, are starting to explore. You know, I worked with a brand just um, a couple of weeks ago, a small B2B organization that was thinking of doing just this exact thing because, quite frankly, they had the content. They looked at their inventory of content and said, you know what? We've got stuff we can monetize here, not just use for better marketing purposes, but we actually have stuff that's industry-defining. We could create something that is, you know, a publication or something that is actually 
um, you know, makes money. And that's a really interesting model that I think is going to just continue. I mean, just in this idea of being different, taking a risk, this is something that I think we're going to see an evolution into. And it's it's just really exciting. I don't think actually, we've talked about this a little bit, but I don't think people realize how many <clears throat> companies buy content from other companies. It's a right. huge industry. Whether you call it content syndication or whatever you call it, it, it's it's a big deal. And if you look at Red Bull's revenues, a lot of their revenues come from the fact that they take those videos, package them up, and sell them to companies like the New York Times to use. Yeah, exactly right. So if you just that's exactly so, right. And, and so let's just you know just pl- you know go down the rabbit hole here and look at, at how things are going. A lot of media companies, especially the traditional ones, big big traditional media companies, they're not spending as much on original production, original content as they used to. Believe it or not. They still are. They're creating more content, but not spending as much on that. They could say, oh, look, we want to, you know, PepsiCo created this great series or this great piece of this great video or this great picture or whatever. And they could buy that directly. And then that's direct monetization for Pepsi as also as and they mentioned this throughout. And you probably love the whole thing about uh, talking about culture and being a part of the conversation. But they're basically saying, exactly. yeah, we're, we just want to we just want to have a say in what goes on. We, just, we think we have a point of view. We just want to talk about that's it. That's exactly right. And I don't think there's a problem with that. And they're not pitching no. any product as they do that. I think that that's the, probably the way it should be. And this is, you know, I, I tweeted this out, this article out when you sent it to me. And I basically said, get ready for more of this. Because this is just the start. And, and whether it's a year, two years, or five years, I would imagine that most major brands are going to have something like this. That they're going yeah. to start to grow and nurture and see what happens as we you know, totally blur, continue to blur, blur the line between what a media company is and what a brand is, brand is because they're the same. We just haven't exactly. noticed. And, and, and we'll touch on this when we get to our this old marketing example this week. But it's, yeah, it's, it's not that it's going to happen. It is happening. There are, it's already starting to happen. I mean, you look at what Lego is doing and, and you know, other brands like that where they're enmeshing themselves more and more as a media brand than they mm-hmm. are sort of a, you know, a, a product brand. And, and, and it is happening. So, can, can I mention yeah, one more good thing? For them. Before, I, Love before, it. Yeah, before Definitely. we go on, can I mention one more thing? Because it's right in the sure, article here. It's right at the end. It's the third last paragraph of this Ad Age article. And so this is Matt Miller. Matt Miller, president of the Association of Independent Commercial Producers, which represents production companies, because a lot of production companies think this is competition, what PepsiCo is doing, said marketers might be able to crank out, quote unquote, short-lived disposable content. But he is skeptical about them making highly crafted pieces of content because they don't have enough volume or breadth of work to draw top production talent, he said. I, I, I don't think that's true at all. I couldn't disagree more. I, I mean, look at the so, – so first of all, look at the cast of the Lego movie. It was top talent. Look, I mean, look, you had 18-time Academy Award winner Meryl Streep show up to your, <laughs> to your launch. That's – Getting a leveled, but we talked about this. You know, we talked about this nine shows ago or a year ago, where we where we started mentioning. It might have been even with Marriott, where we said, "Why is it that people feel icky about this?" You know, where we said, "Look, you have a media company, a Disney or a Fox or an NBC Universal, and they create content, and nobody feels weird about them productizing that content, creating the plush doll and the toys and all that kind of stuff. Yet, when a product company starts to create media that, quite frankly, in some cases doesn't have anything to do with the product, all of a sudden people feel icky. And the difference 
when it comes to it, other than the sort of perception part, is talent. Can you pull in the talent to create that great, wonderful content? There is no reason. There is no reason that Pepsi or any other company can't attract the biggest, best talent in the world to do this. It, by the way, it's already happening. This isn't like it's not happening out there. This is already happening. In terms of, you know, at the smallest level, this is Content Marketing Institute getting Luke Skywalker to come speak at, you know, Content Marketing World. At its highest levels, this is casting a movie that is completely funded by a brand, you know. And so I, I couldn't disagree more with that guy. But that's the thinking. And, and you and I have been yeah. to how many conferences where we've seen media companies, publishers, production uh, companies all say brands can't do it as well as we can. Well, that ship has sailed. Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. So get <laughs> get ready for change, <clears throat> ready. folks. The world is yeah. not flat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sorry. Uh, all <laughs> right, moving on to our last story uh, of the show, and it's an interview with Shane Smith, the CEO of Vice, sort of on this evolution of media and just sort of dovetailing very nicely with the conversation we just had. This article comes to us courtesy of Digiday.com, and it opens up by saying Shane Smith, who is the CEO of Vice, his prognosis for digital media, well, it's grim. The Vice Media CEO held court last night with Hearst Magazine's digital media president, Toy, uh, Troy Young, uh, at part of Hearst Master's Class interview series. The chummy hour-long conversation first focused on the duo's Canadian roots before shifting to the state of the industry. It's worth noting that Hearst has a 10% stake in Vice through A&E Networks. He basically then goes on to talk about how Smith says he expects Viacom to implode and something similar is going to happen at other media companies like Time Warner and Fox. And he says we, meaning Vice, are the largest new media company and we're going to become the fourth largest or fifth largest or maybe the third largest. I like how he covered his bases there. Mainstream media company. He doesn't think it's any secret that you're going to see a bloodbath, he says, in the next 12 months of digital, mobile, and terrestrial media. So this is your world, my friend. What did you think about the CEO's comments here? I think that he's very feisty. Uh, is, is what I think. You should read this article. This is his, he, his blood. You know, basically, I don't know if you've seen him on um, uh, a video of him or anything, but he he tells it like it is, and I, and I really appreciate that. But I don't think I agree with him on this point. Um, there's there's no now whether that we'll see a continual decline in some media companies. Absolutely, but nothing ever happens that fast. Uh, hence. Is radio dead? Is email dead? Uh, no, those things are just evolving and, and continuing. But I think the one thing that I took from this, I took a couple things. One's on Facebook. We could talk about that if you want. But the one thing that he was saying is why, you know, why are media companies, most of these media companies going to fail or why is there going to be a bloodbath? And he says, because they're 100% supported by brand marketing. And this is where there's a point. And we just talked about this, right? right and I'm just, exactly. I was just thinking, I wrote this down. I don't even know if this is a good comparison, but I said, Let's just say you were a Ford. You know, Ford makes automobiles, but yet you're selling to people at some point. Let's just say you were selling to people automobiles, and then at some point they all started to make their own automobiles themselves, and right. you lost your market. That's that's basically what's going on. So the, right now, brands are funding 100% in some cases some of these big media companies, but yet you have PepsiCo and Marriott and Red Bull and John Deere and on and on and on. And these companies are saying every year they're going to take a little bit less. That's why it's not going to be 12 months. 
it's going to be a little, right. little bit less. Yeah, this is a little yeah. bit less. Advertising is not going away by any means, but the problem is if you're the biggest and you're getting the most, that's where the pain will be worst. So that's where some of these big media companies that he's talking about are going to really be hurting um, because because they're still 100% supported by brand marketing. So I don't know if you agree with that. I think that's – no, I do agree with that. I think that's exactly right. I think it's an evolution. You know, one of the things that we talked about, you know, one of the big topic ideas of the retreat that I had in Sundance just a couple of weeks ago was this whole trend of what's called OTT or over-the-top television and how it's driving a lot of change for the TV networks, the content producers, and, and, and all the rest of it, and sort of the whole ecosystem of you know, everybody from Nielsen all the way down and how they're dealing with this OTT trend. And OTT trend, just in simplistic terms, is Netflix and Amazon and basically everybody that doesn't sort of get into the whole Nielsen ratings, ad-supported idea – um, and basically delivering you video content over the top of the set-top box, and that's where it gets its name. And this idea is really putting fear into, yeah, sure, the Viacoms and the NBC Universals and the Comcast to some extent, but you see those companies sort of moving, pivoting, you know, sort of shimmying and shaking a little bit to try and get a, get to a new world where they can actually thrive. And you know, I see some of these companies really starting to evolve. You know, you look at what HBO is doing in order in sort of evolving its subscription service to be available now, OTT. You know, you don't have to have a cable subscription to get some level of, of HBO on demand. It's not the whole thing, but it's very much of it. CBS is going to do this. They're going to debut Star Trek, and it's only going to be available in their OTT service. And so all of these companies are trying to figure out what to do. The big challenge, and I think really what he's getting his point which i think is a good one maybe as you say maybe a little feisty maybe a little overstated is that those companies that can evolve into these new media paradigms are the ones that are going to survive and those that won't won't and that's the real key here because i will tell you having come from this business the cable tv business one of the biggest obstacles to this is that when the networks are negotiating with um the big networks um, and, or excuse me, the networks are negotiating with the big cable providers. You know, these are 10 year contracts. These aren't just, you know, year to year things. And so when they're saying, hey, you're going to have a bundle of Showtime plus MTV plus Nickelodeon, blah, 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 they're making a deal for 10 years. Yep. And so those deals, even if they're coming due now, are being made by, you know, older, people, executives that are looking at it and going, you know, do I really want to be the guy to take the risk here and do something weird and different and innovative and change the way? Or do I just make a renewal of the contract for the next three to five or 10 years and let the kid behind me who's going to deal with all this OTT stuff? And what's happening is, quite frankly, is a lot of the former. They're just going, you know what? I not on my watch. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to deal with it. And that's where this sort of slowness and the evolution and the things that I think he's speaking to are because it's not just TV. Of course, it's happening in movies and publishing and everywhere. And so that'll be the real key here. Well, the, <clears throat> I totally agree with that. The one thing that I would say, he closes up this article on Facebook and his, 
his solution for the Facebook conundrum about Facebook taking over is to diversify. So they basically, they say Vice is on every platform. We're diversifying everywhere. He's moving and shaking, doing his thing, right? And that's great for him. Right. But I'm, my right. concern is that a brand will read this and they'll say, we got to be on every platform. This, this only works right now, and I don't know if it will, but it only works right now is because he wants as many eyeballs as possible. Well, eyeballs <laughs> right. don't mean well, anything. We, shouldn't, re- yeah, we shouldn't forget that he's talking about this in a very self-interested exactly. way. He wants right? more you know and I mean? more. So he wants, he's, he's trying exactly. to, he'll get, he, he yeah. wants eyeballs from everywhere, anywhere he can of get them. Of course he does. Well, brands don't need that, right? We don't necessarily need right. more eyeballs. We need more of the right, right eyeballs doing the right, right things at the right time and serve the right message for that. So this might That's be exactly a horrible right. strategy for us. So I just want to keep That's that in exactly mind that we right. don't follow the vice method. No, uh, that's exactly right. We're looking, that's the one advantage. Interestingly, that's, this is the one advantage that brands have over the media companies, right? Just to the, you know, disagreeing with that previous gentleman's point from the other article that you were talking about is as brands, we're not looking to develop a huge media business. So Pepsi, for example, when they're developing this content, they don't need a huge hit. It's great if they do. But if they don't need a huge hit, what they need is to be part of the conversation as a piece of what they're doing, right? It's a piece of what they're doing from an overall marketing, advertising, communications, awareness, branding strategy. And as a piece of that, and quite frankly, probably a small piece and a much smaller piece if they can actually make money doing it, it becomes really valuable. They don't have to go out and be Viacom. They don't have to go out and be Vice. They can be something much smaller, deliver much more niche value than any of those companies because they don't have to be big. They just have to drive action. Yeah, it's so it's so funny. We just talked about the differentiation versus more, and then you get a guy saying more, more, more. Now he's he's really into the differentiation. I mean, don't get me wrong; yeah. they're they're doing things differently. He wants more and different. Uh, but I think right. I think if we're going to choose, we choose different first, by all means. Yeah. So there you go. Exactly. Well, choose. Speaking of different, we have a different sponsor this week. It's a wonderful sponsor, and we should announce who that we is. We have a different sponsor, but it's sort of a you know, it's a f- old it's a, it's friend. A back, it's a, a retro. It's, it's a it's a retro it's a, sponsor. I want a wonderful <laughs> sponsor. Go to webinar. It's back. We're so thankful for that. Robert, did you know? Which I maybe didn't. you didn't I, from the first eight <laughs> times that I've asked you this, but I'm going to ask you again because oh. sometimes, you know. All right. Just, webinars are consistently rated as the number one marketer tactic for lead generation with over 60% of all marketers utilizing webinars. But many businesses still struggle with how to find their target audience and deliver the right message. Thankfully, we have an ebook just for you following a simple five-step plan the keys to using webinars for successful lead generation go from daunting to daunting doable to doable i miss that so much i absolutely <laughs> I miss love that, that. that hashtag daunting, daunting to, to doable. doable and now live from cleveland ohio daunting to doable <laughs> d to d okay sorry from finding your audience and developing engaging content to authentic interaction and webinar promotion you'll discover the five steps to attract your target audience to your next webinar, an amazing ebook. You got to download it today. CMI.media slash PNR132. You can find that at the short link. CMI.media slash PNR132 to get the ebook Five Steps to Attract Your Target Audience to Your stuff. Next Webinar. Thank you so much to our friends at GoToWebinar for making this happen. It's absolutely good stuff. And we know it's good stuff because we've been there. We daunting. 
it's doable. been daunting and then it's doable and then it absolutely is doable and all right and speaking of doable it is now time for your favorite segment of the show ladies and gentlemen it is our rants and rave section where joe and i go off on a little bit of a rant or a little bit of a rave over something that makes us feel like we're different and makes us want to smile or makes us feel like we're the same and don't want to stick our heads out of the sand because we'll get it chopped off um and so i guess i'm first because i have this old you are first indeed yes go right ahead well i have a small rave um just an article that i thought was really really good and i'm gonna and then i have a bit of a longer rant um and this one is a little more ranty than than maybe normal um and so the the rave really quickly here the article that we'll link to in the show notes comes from mediapost.com and it's entitled, Why Don't Most Large Advertisers Treat Marketing Strategically? And it goes on, the author, to explain some of the, I mean, it's like this guy could have written or and or attended one of my, I mean, it just, it was like he was mimer, mimer, mimicking my sort of lips. You know, I was the puppet sitting on his lap there because he talks about Peter Drucker and about how in the practice of management, Peter Drucker speaks to the fact that the business only has two, two and only two unique functions in the business, marketing and innovation. They are the ones that produce results. Everything else is a cost. And that's a quote from Peter Drucker. And then he goes on to talk about really Today's business looks at many of marketing's core activities as being an outsourceable thing. Many CMOs don't report to the CEO. Most marketing enterprises procure marketing services and advertising products on a cost basis. Marketing folks aren't paid as well as other executives. You know this is a big thing with me. I have a sort of BHAG in my life as I want to get marketing to the same level as we treat doctors and lawyers because I think it's that that important. Um, And then turnover and talks about... Um, the idea of how fast CMOs turn over. I'm not going to spoil the article. It's just required reading. Go look at it. It's a wonderful article about why marketing should be more strategic, and it isn't. Um, it is the focus of, of course, Carla and my book, um, and that's just a really great. What's uh, what's? I'm okay. sorry. What's the name of your book? Uh, <laughs> the name of my book with Carla Johnson is called. Thank Experience. you. I didn't. Know, I didn't really. I mean, some of the people might be Thank listening you, and they don't know You're this. S- you're so you very go. sweet to okay. actually make me do now that. Now you may All go right. on. Thank you. Okay, so this is a rant, and this comes, the link uh, we'll put in the show notes is to Psychology Today, which should already start to set off alarm bells for you. Um, and the title of the article is Stop Trying to Build Your Personal Brand. And I wish I'd seen this last week before my show opening last week because it would have just fit so perfect. But I was still on the topic, and I saw this thing hit my inbox, and I was like, all right, I'm interested. Stop buying, trying to build your personal brand. The article opens up by saying, I teach Mark. It's written by a marketing professor, apparently. Um, I teach marketing, advertising, and consumer behavior, so I have nothing against brands, says the author. Quite the antithesis, as W.C. Fields would say. Brands are useful in business because they facilitate easy recognition and immediate recall of latent knowledge, experiences, and memories. For example, if I show you the Golden Arches, I don't need to tell you the company's name, what it sells, and what memories and experiences you have as a customer. Um, and for those of you who tuned in last week, you'll note that I used the Golden Arches and McDonald's in my in my show open in the introduction last week. Anyway, he goes on to then basically say, not only does he think that 
basically HR people and career counselors and those that are advising young people to build a personal brand is bad advice. It offends him. It, I mean, it offends him. It offends his sensibilities, and he's going to tell us why. He then goes on for a four-point argument to talk about how, one, just as companies and organizations should view and treat their employees as human beings, individuals shouldn't facilitate the commoditization of themselves by creating a brand. I don't even know what his point is there, but he makes it. Is your personal brand who you are, really, when you're not looking for work? And he goes on to talk about it's just a false front. On a third point, he says strong brands are definition uh, by definition limiting. In other words, you have to focus in on things. Weak brands are less so. So his point being, if you develop a, a strong brand, personal brand, you're going to have to focus on something. And if you build a weak brand, then oh you're not. Oh, my gosh. I, I, I'm sorry. Then he says, last and probably most important is this, and then I put this in bold because this is his sort of, because he says it's most important. If the idea of developing a personal brand is appealing to you, there might be an underlying problem or weakness you are ignoring. So here's what I have to say to the professor. My, my, my response to this is this. So there's this old adage that, has served me well as a marketer and I've been in marketing for 25 years and it's this and I, what I say is uh, and I when young people ask me it's the first thing I say to them when they say we're just starting out what should we do and I the first thing I say is market to where you're going not where you are in other words you what you're marketing is aspirational it's not where you may be in your particular business life right now so if you're a consultant market to what you want to be consulting on not to what you're doing to pay the rent and actually do the thing so market where you're going not where you are it has worked for me and you know so take that for whatever it's worth and so but the other thing that's more important when you start thinking about a business and when you're in branding what I say a lot is we do, we're in marketing. We're not here for the truth. We're here for the aspirational truth. In other words, it's what ought to be the truth. And you picture in your head the McDonald's burger for a second. You picture in your head the McDonald's burger and the fries or picture your favorite auto driving, right? So you've got a TV ad running through your head right now with the food, with the secret sauce just dripping out just perfectly or your favorite sports carts racing around a very wet road where the gleaming reflection off of the chrome is just perfect. That's the truth. And of course, you know very different when you get into that restaurant or get into that car that it's a very, very different experience. What we market is what ought to be the truth. It's aspirational. So back to this article. If this article had been written in 1985, I might have agreed with this guy. But here's the thing. One of the things that we talk about these days is how even brands don't control their own brand, right? The brand nowadays is the sum of the experiences that we create in the world and that the, our customers or people we want to do business with have with us and share about us. It's the perception of people who have those experiences. Now, most of those experiences consumed by any large number of people, and certainly as we get smaller and smaller and smaller down to the individual person, down to someone like a Candace Payne who creates a wonderful video, these are all content-driven experiences for the most part. And we create those content-driven experiences willingly or unwillingly as we participate in today's digital world. And this is why I think it's so important now that we talk about this. So here's an example. I was working with this young girl, and she's in college, and she's thinking about her first job. 
A quick Google search of her name comes up with a couple of ranty Yelp reviews, her Facebook profile of her partying with her friends, let's just say a not, couple of not-so-great Vine videos that she was experimenting with, the platform. There's a largely vacant LinkedIn interview, and a, excuse me, LinkedIn profile. So none of it's horrible or terribly embarrassing or anything, but that's her brand before she goes on an interview. That's what her representation is to the world. And assuming that employers or colleagues aren't going to search Google before they meet with this person is just naive, especially for what she wants to get into, which is, of course, marketing and communication. So here's the thing. And to this professor's last point where he says, why aren't you content to compete in the job market and have the workplace based on the merit on who you really are? In other words, you, that's what you should be doing. My answer to him is, because what people are going to see when they look for me digitally isn't a fair or accurate reputation of my merit or who I am. And it certainly isn't a representation of where I want to be or where I'm going, my aspirational value. So the choice for today's young person, the new college graduate or the new job seeker, or quite frankly, the old job seeker that's trying to transition out of an old dead end job into some new career is one, do nothing. Depend on the knowledge you have, your expertise, the books you've read, the internships, and let the digital vision flow where it may. Or two, try and shape it. Write, create, build, shape a personal brand, if you will, that creates a vision of the world that more accurately represents who you want to be in that world. I don't mean just polishing up the resume, but rather creating that awesome travel photo library or the cool website or the interesting app or the blog post or the weird off-center music performance that you put on SoundCloud. Whatever it is, it's a reflection of who you want to be to the digital world. And if you were as a kid were so wrapped up in everything that there is no digital footprint of you, well, that can be worse than having one to begin with. So the two choices are really do nothing and hope there's no preconceived notion about who you are when you go into that interview or try and position yourself for a job over the competition. Or you can take an active role in that perception that you put into the world. You can call it a personal brand. You can call it just taking an active view on your life. And you can see how you want to be perceived. My advice, for whatever it's worth, is active is better. Even where I disagree with this guy again, if it limits you because of, it shows a personality trait that disqualifies you from some job, you were never going to be happy at that job anyway. So if you put out something in the world that's going to disqualify you from a job, guess what? You're probably not suited for that job anyway. Anyway, it just shows again that we in the older generation have so much to learn from the younger generation and those that are taking an active view and action on their digital life, and they're way ahead of those who don't. And so I could not disagree with this guy more, and I think it's bad advice, and I think building a personal brand, independent of what you actually call it, is a good activity for today's young job seeker. Boy, I love that. End of I love that. And to be right for one person, you have to be wrong for another. Exactly. And this one basically says, you want to be great for everybody. Just in case you might be wrong for the one. Uh, I'm, I mean, I have so many. I could go on for another 10 minutes just oh, to gosh. talk about There's that. The whole Jim, have you ever seen the Jim Carrey thing where he said he, he talks about his father? It's a graduation speech he gave. And he said he talks about his father. And he said, guess what? After 40 years working, you can get fired from a job you hate. <laughs> you know yep, what I mean? Exactly. <laughs> oh, that's so good. Hey, so, OK, yeah. here's I was going to do two articles. I'm, I'm going to do one. I'm going to do one. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Wrong. You went I fine. Went you went, because it was yeah. awesome. 
but I, you know, we've covered the other one. So I received two really amazing articles from our man in Slovenia, Nenad Senek, that I wanted to share. The first one is the rant one that I really, it's, not, it's a little bit of a rant, kind of like yours, but I want to share this because I think it's interesting. So the, it comes from Stylist Magazine, uh, which we'll put this in the show notes, where they say goodbye to their digital edition. Which Nanette, of course, loved because Nanette loves print yeah, right. of any kind. And the fact that somebody's getting rid of their digital edition was kind of news. So it's kind of like news. Now, this text, and Nanette sent me this, comes from their email to subscribers. And I took out a few key sections. So listen to this and I'll get your feedback. So it says, we will unfortunately no longer be publishing a digital edition of Stylist. I want to take a moment to explain how we've come to, to this tricky decision. The vast majority of downloads and readers have been on Apple devices via the Apple newsstand. But unfortunately, as you may know, Apple changed their strategy on tablet editions late in 2015 and abruptly closed the newsstand area on the Apple store. This has left publishers like (laughs) ourselves high and dry without a dedicated marketplace in which we can distribute our edition. Having considered all feasible options for continuing the service, we have made the decision to cease publishing the edition. We know this may be disappointing and and sincerely apologize for that, but can only reassure you that Stylist remains strongly committed to its print edition, which we will continue to distribute every week, and of course, our fantastic website, where you can also find find most of the content you'll see in print each week. It goes on and on like this, but here's the point. And and it's not a rant against the message at all. It's a rant against what they got themselves into that I don't want anybody listening to this to get into is that <laughs> Rented yeah, <land>. Apple, Facebook, <laughs> Medium, anyone else, go down the line that you can think of, can do whatever they want. And you can absolutely publish on their platforms. And that's great if you want to do that, but you've got to realize that you don't own anything <laughs> that has to do with that. So if part of your business model is dependent on someone else's distribution capacity, you are in trouble. Maybe not now, maybe not in six months, but someday you are going to be in trouble. And just note, Robert, so this is the the last part of this. Note that the two they are keeping, their website and their print publication, are controlled by them. And those are what they're continuing. So I just thought that that was it. Yeah, good for them. them. Because the Facebook one and the Apple newsstand one and everything else is gone because they didn't have control over that stuff. So It's like that Louis C.K. bit, right? Of course. Of course you can build your house on rented land. Of course you can build your publication on, on, on Apple newsstand. Of course you can do that. Of course. But maybe... <laughs> If you do that, you shouldn't be surprised when they change the rules when and you go out of When it's not there anymore or nobody yeah, shows exactly. up to it anymore. But so maybe. I just thought that – thank you, Nanette, for sending that out. Yeah. I just thought that was perfect in what we've been sort that's of a really proclaiming one. all that's along a really about rented land. So there you go. Yeah, that's a good one. All right. So to this old marketing, and it's a short one um, today, <clears throat> and a big, huge hat tip here. To, and I'm going to mispronounce your name already, Hans, so I'm going to apologize in advance. Hans Christian Bleck, um, and he's at Bleck, B-L-E-C-K-E, on Twitter, if you want to go follow Hans there. Um, and he sent an article over that he actually wrote on Medium.com, um, and we're going to link to a few articles here, the Wikipedia article, a article from Christian Science Monitor, which sort of goes through the history, his article, of course, on Medium, which speaks to it. So here's the interesting thing. And, it, and the reason I was fascinated by this story, Joe, is because 
when he sent it over, it was in German. And so I had to go to Google Translate and translate the article. And it's a great, wonderful post that he writes. And he speaks to, so we often talk about, you know, Lego is one of the, you know, brands that we like you know it's been abused at this point with how much we've talked about it in terms of content marketing lego 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 movie lego park lego magazine lego kicks and bricks lego 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 and so playmobile which i remember as a kid i totally remember playmobile it was great it was the alternative to lego and of course is huge in europe and germany specifically and he talks about how they started in content now, I've read, you know, in doing the research for this, I went and read so many articles on Playmobil, and it fascinates me how little there is on Playmobil out there. And so if somebody's feeling really interested in going and finding out the real history of Playmobil and marketing and what they've done, there's a really interesting vein to sort of um, explore there. But the articles that I found found a few things is they have been doing content for really since the beginning of the company. Um, the company itself was started, oh, a long time ago, basically way back <clears throat> in 19, uh, let's see, it was 1971, basically, where Beck, um, uh, Hans Beck uh, created the company, and basically he was an engineer who started to develop these, these wonderful new toys that sort of mimicked, um, you know, what people really look like and those sorts of things, and they, the history, the this sort of mythology around the company is that basically the early oil crisis of the mid seventies sort of moved them into being a viable product because they st- they could diversify and these much less plastic basically had to be made for these toys and that's the way they expanded. But really, as they started to expand, they started getting into content as a primary way of getting these toys into kids' hands. And it goes back to, and some of the stuff that I found was just fascinating. So back in 19, the late 1970s, they were creating literally phonograph records. They would create records that you would put on your record player that would have songs and stories that you could follow along and basically listen to them. And I, I, I actually listened to one. It was all in German um, called Unser Sheriff is der Best. Oh, I, my apologies to the Germans out there for completely butchering the language. But it's basically our sheriff is the best and where there was a story about a sheriff in this town and he was the best town and it was on this phonograph record. Then it went to comic books. Then they started doing coloring books. Now they've relaunched the Playmobil magazine uh, just three years ago. So that's been running for the last three and a half years um, in the UK primarily. They have a new TV series that they've had the TV series in France and the UK and Germany. It's now coming to the US. Um, and basically, and this is what I was alluding to earlier in the show when I was saying that brands are now creating content. So here's a brand creating a new TV show for Netflix. It's getting put on Netflix, actually put on Netflix in 2015 called Super 4, which is basically this wonderful story about um, the, the, the all the characters in the Playmobil universe. And they now have a feature film in the makes. And so they've had a feature film in Europe, but now they're going to have an international release of a feature film that was just literally confirmed in February of this year and it's going to debut next year so and they've got theme parks in europe um, where the people kids can go play they're creating experiences they're basically doing at a much i guess smaller is the right way to think about it smaller level everything that lego is doing sort of creating a complete content and media ecosystem to really drive the sale uh, of toys and it's just a wonderful thing that they've been doing for literally the last 50 years and just a, I think a great example of this. Old That's market. amazing. There's so many things going on that we just are not 
aware of. I know. It was, I was like, oh, yeah, I recognize that brand when he sent it over. And then I went and read it, and I started, I was like, yeah, I remembered playing with these things. Those are, those are awesome. Those are, those are really cool. That but, is... yeah, and you just forget that there's this whole other universe of companies out there doing things. And, and this one has a whole ecosystem from comic books to coloring books to TV to movies to records and radio shows and the whole thing. It's just a, it's a wonderful idea. We have so much to do and so little time, my friend. Absolutely. I'll tell you what. That, so... is, the, that is the truth. <laughs> so what's your, what's your week like this week? My week is quiet. I'm actually heads down writing. I'm going to try and get a couple of blog posts done. I'm trying to get some other things done um, that you know about. Um, and, you know, really just heads down. I, I travel. I'm, I'm off the, in, in, in two weeks. Um, you know, we have the holiday weekend coming up here. And then I'm off to do the keynote for the Chicago BMA ANA. Um, I'm the closing last day morning keynote there. So I'm excited about that. That's great. No, that's, I, I, yeah. I usually am there. I can't make it this year and I know you will, you will do an amazing job at that one. And I, I'm loving it now because I just, as I, as I told you, I got off my first internet or my last international trip, uh, before content marketing world, at least without the family. And I'm a super excited about spending more time at home with the family, doing a lot of Very writing. Nice. Of course we got, got lots of content marketing world stuff, but Oh, uh, tons but, of but, stuff. But good times with the family, so I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that is it for Joe Polizzi. This is Robert Rose. We're signing off. And if you like this episode, number 132, yeah, that's right, 132, do consider subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher.com if you don't already. And if you subscribe, if you subscribe... Let us know, won't you? Hashtag this old marketing on that Twitter thing. We'd love to just thank you personally for that. That's how much we appreciate you as a subscriber to our little podcast love. And of course, story ideas, story ideas, story ideas. We love them. As you can hear from this show, we depend on them. Hashtag this old marketing on the Twitter. And you can also hit us up with an email if you've got questions like Jaden did, um, basically sending it to this old marketing at contentinstitute.com. All the links we talked about today will be available in the show notes that'll be available within the show that we'll publish on Monday evening and of course in the show post at thisoldmarketing.com on Saturday afternoons. Until next week everybody, remember it is your story to tell. Tell it well. See you next week on This Old Marketing. of the CMI Podcast Network. Check out all of our shows at contentmarketinginstitute.com.